I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Rachel and I have got family who live in the heart of Hong Kong on Nathan Road in Kowloon. It's a little bit like our George Street in the city, only taller high rise and tens of thousands more people. And as you weave your way through the crowded footpaths of Nathan Road, before you even realise it, an army of salespeople have picked you out and they have ready for you the latest deal in tailored suits, personalised business shirts, electronics, cameras, but one of my favourites, and I don't know how they do this, for as little as 20 bucks, they can fix you up with the latest Rolex watch from Europe's finest designers. And not even Aldi can beat that. If we want to know if something's genuine, we ask questions like, where did you get it? From whom did you get it? Under what circumstances did you get it? Now, a fake watch, big deal. You might run late. Some of you might run later. But a fake gospel, on the other hand, that's a catastrophe. That is an absolute disaster. In our passage that Fiona just read for us, Paul is defending God's authentic message of salvation through the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, as we call it, that message. But false teachers have thrown the Galatians into confusion, saying, sure, Jesus' death is important, But what Paul hasn't told you, because he's a people pleaser, is that to be acceptable to God, you must observe the Jewish law. But so what? It's a 2,000-year-old controversy about obscure Jewish customs from a city most of us, let's be honest, will probably never visit. So who cares? Who cares? Every serious-minded disciple should care, and I'll tell you why. Because in every era, this authentic gospel has been undermined by people who feel the need to add to Jesus' saving work, as if his sacrificial death for sinners wasn't enough. Received directly from Jesus, we're going to see Paul preaches God's authentic message of salvation. It's a gospel that saves, it's a gospel that transforms, and it's a gospel that unites his church. So let me pray as we take a closer look at our passage. Will you join me? Gracious God, would the words of my mouth and would the thoughts of our hearts be pleasing to you, we ask, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, in your bulletin, you'll find a sermon outline. That's the terrain that we're going to be covering. If you're taking notes, now's the time to bring it out. Now, there's a backstory to this controversy. Between starting the church in Galatia and now, people from Jerusalem have undermined Paul's message and unsettled the Galatians. We haven't met these people in detail yet. We will. But we heard in chapter 2, verse 4, false believers had infiltrated our ranks, writes Paul, to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. 
And these people, they'd agree with Paul that the sacrificial death of Jesus is important, but in addition, they are pressuring the Galatians to become slaves of Jewish food laws, special days, and for the boys, circumcision according to the law of Moses. In other words, according to these false believers, as Paul calls them, when it comes to being accepted by God, Jesus' death is necessary, but not sufficient. They preach what's called a Jesus plus gospel and in its various forms, I'm afraid to say this heresy is alive and well today, trust Jesus plus do these things and maybe, hopefully, if you've done enough, God might accept you. Good luck. Hardly a gospel of reassurance. By contrast, We heard it last week, Paul opened his letter to the Galatians with something of a reminder and a rebuke at the same time. He he puts before them the gospel that they have received, grace and peace to you, chapter 1, verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Grace from God. God's love set upon you despite who you are. Not treating us as our sins deserve. Kerry opened our service, those words from Romans 5, it was while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you remember that? That's grace. Grace and peace to you from God. Peace, restored friendship, an end to the hostility we created in our disobedience against our loving Heavenly Father. Grace and peace from God, says Paul, made available how? By following Jewish customs? No, verse 4. Grace and peace through the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself, God is a giver, gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. This is the good news Paul preached. This is the good news, the gospel that the Galatians received. I pray it's the good news you've received. Full and free forgiveness through Jesus Christ, our rescuer. But the question you ought to be asking yourself is, how do we know Paul's message is authentic? Remember those questions we might ask ourselves. If we want to know something's genuine, where did it come from? From whom did you get it and under what circumstances? Well, Paul preaches a received gospel. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. When it comes to authenticity, Paul's message comes straight from the top. He received it in that famous meeting that Paul, or Saul as he was then, had with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Do you remember in our series from Acts, Jesus confronts Saul. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It was during that meeting Paul receives this gospel from Jesus. And to prove to the Galatians he's not peddling a message ripped off from others, he points out my immediate response, that is, to this revelation. 
My immediate response was not to consult any human being. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Now, if we put that geography into perspective, I didn't know this, I looked it up. Damascus is about 300 kilometres from Jerusalem. About, what's that, Sydney to Canberra, thereabouts, give or take. Sydney to Bungie, maybe. And when I realised this, it seemed odd to me that Paul wouldn't cross-check the details of his revelation with the apostles in Jerusalem. It's not that far to go. That would have been my instinct. But it was three years before Paul visited the Apostle Peter, and then only briefly. And it was 17 years before Paul would formally compare notes with the other apostles about this received gospel. So why does Paul take so long to make a connection with the mothership in Jerusalem? Why does he take so? Is it because Paul is an arrogant cowboy who thinks, well, I don't need to go and see the apostles in Jerusalem? I don't think it's got anything to do with arrogance. I think the answer is really quite straightforward. When you're under direct orders from the risen Jesus, do you need permission from anyone? No. Do you need endorsement from anybody? Of course not. When God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. Why would he consult? He doesn't need permission to preach. Now, you compare Paul's situation to how preachers are selected in our Anglican tradition here in Sydney. First, you've got to get yourself into more college. That's a challenge in itself. Then as a candidate for ordained ministry, Rachel and I had to undergo two sets of psychometric testing. We had regular interviews before panels of people delegated with authority by the Archbishop. I was under regular supervision from my senior minister. And just when you think you're finished, and I didn't know this until it happened, your congregation is invited to comment on your ordination. Now, of course, my critics, my critics, they'll point out that, well, the system can't be perfect because I slipped through. And to them, I simply say the system mightn't be foolproof, but I can assure you of this, every ordained man and woman in Sydney has been thoroughly examined by a number of people over a long period of time. Not Paul. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So, Galatian Christians, if you want to reject me, says Paul, if you want to have another gospel, be aware of this, you reject the one who sent me. Be careful, Galatians. Paul preaches a received gospel, God's authentic message of salvation through the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ. It's a gospel that saves and it's a gospel that transforms and here's where things start to get practical. You've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, writes Paul, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. 
I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. You'll have noticed all of that's in the past tense. My previous way of life. I was advancing. I was zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Paul's saying to the Galatians, look, if you were to go back to the Jewish law, knock yourself out, but I can outdo every one of you. I can outdo you all. Name the time and I will outdo you. But Galatians, ask yourself this where did all this religion get me? What was the fruit of it? Well, Paul's already told us. The fruit of his religious fanaticism was hatred of the Lord Jesus Christ and an overwhelming desire to destroy his church. And you want to go back to the Jewish law, Galatians. But after meeting Jesus, Paul's not the man he used to be. I was advancing. I was zealous. Notice how verse 15 starts, but when God... God's intervention, isn't it? Despite everything, God lovingly turns Paul's life on its head, transforming him from persecutor to preacher. He hasn't written it yet, but in another letter, Paul will write to the church in Corinth and he'll reassure them if anyone's in Christ, they are a new creation. The new creation's come, the old's gone, the new is here. So I want to say to you today, if you're a Christian, having received God's forgiveness in response, our baseline expectation, it ought to be that God will transform you into a new person. That ought to be our baseline expectation of what God will do in us. And what I'm getting at, we'll see more of this when we get to chapter 5, it's easy to stagnate in your Christian life. It's easy to drift into casual, complacent Christianity. And if we're honest, there's the ever-present temptation to accommodate sin. But as God's people, accepted and dearly loved by him, the Christian life is one of ongoing, progressive transformation. That's why the vision of our church is to see people being transformed by Jesus. This is where we get it from. And Paul's transformation ought to leave all of us optimistic because if God can transform someone like Paul, there's hope for me, there's hope for you. I mentioned earlier that Christianity Explored course starts here, four o'clock today. There's a terrific line in that course from the presenter, Rico Tice. And it's a line I reckon Paul would endorse a thousand percent. He says, you are more sinful than you ever imagined. Let that sink in for a second. You're more sinful than you ever imagined and more loved than you ever dreamed. Paul preaches a gospel that's authentic. It's a received message. It's a gospel that saves. It's a gospel that transforms. And it's a gospel that unites the church. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and 
meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, the apostles in other words, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles, the gospel that I preach in Galatia to the non-Jews. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. This is, without exaggeration, the most important meeting in church history. No question. We read about it in Acts 15, if you were here for our series in Term 1. This is the most important meeting in church history to the Jerusalem apostles. So who's that? That's Peter, James, John, Andrew, and so forth. Paul presents the gospel message that he's been preaching in cities like Galatia. Now remember... Since Paul received this gospel directly from Jesus, Paul is not making sure that he's got the details right. He's making sure that the Jerusalem apostles have got it right. And as a test case, he brings Titus along for the ride. Titus has become a Christian. Titus has no Jewish heritage. He's a Greek. I don't know how you test for these things, but perhaps I don't want to know. But Titus hasn't been circumcised either. Right. If the Jerusalem apostles force Titus to be circumcised, they'll be siding with the false teachers of Galatia. It's a massive moment in church history. If they force Titus to be circumcised, they will be saying, you've made a good start, Titus but to be fair dinkum accepted by God, you must follow Jewish law. There's a lot on the line here. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me, says Paul. God doesn't show favouritism. They added nothing to my message. Nothing. And we shouldn't be surprised The gospel that Jesus reveals to Paul is the same gospel that he reveals to the apostles in Jerusalem. We shouldn't be surprised by that. And as their treatment of Titus proves, their gospel is the same. Not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek, which means the apostles, Paul, the apostle, and the Jerusalem apostles, they are in full agreement When it comes to your salvation, outward religious custom adds nothing. It might be important, but so far as your salvation is concerned, it adds nothing. And as recognition of their unity, James, Cephas, that's Peter and John, those esteemed as pillars, and rightly so, they gave me, Paul and Barnabas, the right hand of fellowship when they recognised the grace given to me. This is a wonderful picture of church unity. One that would see Paul go on to preach Christ crucified in cities like, well, what? Colossians, uh, Colossae, Ephesus, Philippi, Berea, Corinth, Crete, Rome and more. And for the sake of the Galatians here, Paul defends this gospel of salvation by God's grace alone 
through faith alone in Christ alone. Paul defends this gospel and we are the beneficiaries. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I didn't receive it from anyone, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So praise be to Jesus for his gospel that saves, for his gospel that transforms, and his gospel that unites the church. So I urge you to stand with the apostles in upholding Jesus, the one who rescues us from the present evil age. Let me pray. Gracious God, we do thank you for your servants raised up for our good in every age. Thank you for the faithfulness of your apostles. And We pray that the same spirit that guided them in all truth would likewise guide us. Take us and use us, we pray. Transform us, we ask that the brilliance of your son would be seen in us. Only you can do that, Father, and so we pray that you would. And we ask it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.